Hello and welcome. My name is Tamara Cunningham. I'm a senior strategist in Rothko, part of Accenture Interactive here in Dublin. Hi, my name is Darius Passler. I'm a strategy director also here in Rothko. So every year, Fjord compiles a couple of key trends on the shifts we've seen in the world around us and how we're all thinking, feeling and acting as a result. We shared some of those in a live session last week um, and we were very lucky to be invited in to have the chats about what we think some of these trends mean for Irish consumers and brands alike. Uh, but there is just so much to unpack in such a short space of time. So what we decided the world needed was yet another podcast. So we're here to dive into them in a little bit more detail. Um, so Darius, do you want to kick it off with the first trend for today? I certainly will. So the first trend we have is called collective displacement. I think displacement is something we've all felt massively over the last year. But it's interesting how Fjord really unpacked this and really got under the bones of this trend. So when we look at this idea of collective displacement, really it has been a massive impact from COVID-19 and it's affected so many parts of our lives. Disconnection from the familiar, disconnection from our lives, the office, our workplace, our family. And that's felt through not just a societal point of view, but also how we're operating and living. So it's interesting when we think about displacement because it's about literally moving us. We're all shifting into different ways of operating and living. And this feeling of disconnection as well, it really does have an impact on how we how we live our lives, but also how we feel. So the emotional impact as well is something we need to be able to flag. So it's interesting because it really does hit us from both a small level, from a domestic point of view, but then also from a collective point of view. If we're all collectively displaced, it means we're all trying to figure out where we sit how we work, how we operate. And it's something I think from a marketing point of view, we need to be able to acknowledge, but also figure out how we can best use to our advantage or be able to sidestep around when is most appropriate. So with that in mind, Tamara and I are going to take a hot take to, to figure out how we can have a look at that. Thanks, Darius. Um, yeah, hot take number one coming in fast. I think one of the really interesting things, obviously there's been it's been really well recorded, the fact that we're doing everything from working out to working from home. Um, and one of the things I think just stood out to me from an Irish perspective is um, the displacement of socialising and social life, right? And how and where that's going to happen going forward. I think, you know, the fact that the pub is seen as such an integral part of our social fabric, a pillar of the community, particularly in rural parts of the country, almost part of our kind of cultural or collective cultural identity and yet, you know, we've suffered or endured one of the longest, most severe lockdowns, certainly of our pubs in the world, um, but, you know, bars and restaurants as well. And it's just interesting to think what, what impact is that going to have and how and, and, and where we spend our time, our free time going forward. And, you know, I think what it's done is it's sort of forced us all to broaden our horizons. And when we don't have that default option of going to the local, even, you know, it's a big part of of our work culture. There's lots of studies that show Irish people tend to socialise with colleagues outside of work a lot more than any other European country. So work drinks is, is a bigger part of our of our culture. And again, how we get to know our colleagues and how we kind of familiarise ourselves in that environment. But, you know, as I said, we've been forced to kind of to find alternatives. I think how many people do we see saying, you know, it only took a global pandemic for me to take the bike out of the shed or for me to figure out what my my local area had to offer. And, you know, while that's not unique, lots of people globally are feeling much more connected to their natural environments, much more kind of hanging out in, in, in forms of doing more activity based and um, socialising. 
what is unique to Ireland is that typically we have lagged behind in some of those alternatives. Like if you speak to people that have come to live and work in Dublin, potentially after for some of the, the kind of tech companies may have worked in other cities around the world, they quite, quite often comment on the fact that we don't have as broad a spectrum of available social outlets and ways to spend your time. And they find that quite different to to some other cities, even if you look at things like the way our public spaces are designed. I know, Darius, we were chatting about this, like there's no public toilets in most of our parks. Because I it's love just, the way we're already talking about <laughs> bringing it down, podcast, bring it down to the gutter. But, you know, that they're just not designed for people to spend large periods of time out there because it just hasn't been part of our culture to the same extent. So I think, you know, while I've no doubt we'll be rushing back to the pubs and bars the minute they open, myself included, I do think there's been a shift in the way that we have opened up the potential of ways to spend our free time. And I think we will seek wider variety. I think venues, employers, brands, there's a huge opportunity for them to go, okay, how can we start to facilitate different types of socialising? How can we add value to some of those interactions? How can we bring in some more unexpected elements that kind of elevate elevate the experience and really make those um, those shared moments more memorable. So I do think, you know, we'll definitely go back uh, to some of the ways um, uh, that we were socialising previously. But I think there's some things has shifted um, that we're going to see lasting long into the future. Yeah. Do you know what's mad as well? It's like now we have to, now we've all had to relocate and kind of work with our cities, our spaces in a new way. Like there's, I don't know if you've seen this, but in Japan, they have this thing called forest bathing, which sounds much more dramatic than it is, but it's it's basically sounds you delightful. go out to, oh, it's glorious. But you go out to a forest and you, you let the forest wash over you, yeah? It's a practice which has been happening in Japan for a really long time. In the UK now, the NHS is starting to uh, prescribe it to people. It helps alleviate depression. But all it is is going for a stroll in a forest and allowing yourself to have that mindfulness. And it's interesting because so many more people now have started to use their city and their space in a way where our health, our mental health and the physicality of the city and our spaces has become really, really important. So I think when we enter our brave new world, how brands and organisations capitalise on that will be really, really interesting. Like, I know you spoke there about the toilets, but like, Jesus, it's an open market there, you know? So it is, though, it's interesting how we're going to redesign our cities, how we're going to redesign urban and, and rural spaces to be able to accommodate new lives we want to be able to live. Totally. Sponsored portaloos, you heard it here first. Sponsor portaloos. <laughs> Um, that's great. Okay, conscious of time. So we'll go on to our second trend. And this one I really loved as well, um, the trend around DIY innovation. Um, so this is really looking at how innovation has changed, you know, over the last 12 months. Typically, I guess previously when you said that word, it would conjure up images of technology. And there was a real sense that innovation was being driven by by technology and devices, uh, wearables, tech, all of these things. But what we've essentially seen over the last couple of months is that actually it's really been driven by human ingenuity, right? How we can be resourceful and react uh, to challenging circumstances, almost kind of innovation in its in its purest sense, going back to that kind of life hack mentality. How can I build better solutions with the tools that I have available to me um, rather than, you know, having to, to come up with a new a new kind of app for the sake of having technology, you know, it really was back to, I need to improve uh, my work situation or my, I need to make my new home fit for purpose. So lots of um, displays of human ingenuity. And I think what it's shown for brands is that, 
you know, there is a need for them to rethink how they think and talk about innovation and this shift away from, okay, I need to create the perfect solution and hand it over to my consumers. And that's the value exchange here. That's what they want from me. They want me to kind of give them the finished package and actually moving more towards, okay, how can we empower our consumers with the tools that they need for them to kind of create that bespoke solution for them in home um, and actually get a little bit more creative with how do we interact with customers? How can we bring them in to the organization and the experience in a, in a, in a different way? And potentially that that can actually build, you know, more lasting relationships as a, as a, um, as an output, you know? Um, so I think that was one that really stood out to me. And I know it was something that, that you were kind of quite interested in as well. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about this from the democratization of it. Like innovation is a funny word. I think we can hollow it out a bit. But what I love about this is through collaboration and the democratizing of it, more people can innovate in lots of different ways. So it doesn't always have to be just a tech-driven solution. Innovation can come in much more smaller domestic day-to-day points where people come together, where brands and organizations with people are able to to innovate in a way which really has an impact. So just a really small example of this is we did a campaign for Daffodil Day. So obviously Daffodil Day reply it needs people on the ground to sell daffodils. Without that, we put it online, we were able to migrate it there, and it had a great response. But it was practical DIY innovation with people in a room to be able to make that happen, which I just love. It's There's actually this great... Um, speech done by Neil Gaiman uh, probably about 10 years ago now where he spoke about how the gatekeepers of creativity had gone and the internet allowed everybody to be creative it allowed whoever you wanted to be whatever you wanted to do to have an audience and for that to be pushed out in the world and it feels like now the gatekeepers of innovation have also gone we all are democratised to be able to innovate in ways which make our lives better and brands which are able to facilitate that or work with consumers to be able to do that presumably will be in a much stronger place. It also, from a relationship point of view, I just think is really interesting. It ushers in a new age of what innovation is, what role brands can play in people's lives and how they can come together, which I just think is fab. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think that that point of kind of coming together is something really interesting that we've certainly seen over the last number of months here in Ireland as well. Like some of my favourite examples, things like neighbour food or the doorstep market. So this was really a number of you know, small Irish producers and businesses coming together and thinking, how can we compete with the likes of Amazon or ASOS, these huge online marketplaces that already have, you know, the infrastructure to be able to weather a storm like this pandemic. They have the infrastructure to deliver things to people's homes. Um, And, you know, how can we, how can we compete with that? And what they've done is they just had a number, I think it was 20 volunteers built this website, put it together to offer a similar online experience so that we can actually, you know, support local using existing technology solutions, um, using existing payment systems, um, but actually shopping those businesses that so many of us want to see survive this and not to be, you know, not to be lost in the hardship that we've seen over the last number of months. So that idea of collaboration and almost putting putting competition aside, right, realising that for the benefit of the consumer, for the for creating a better overall user experience, it actually makes more sense for us to come together, be shopped in one place as if someone could walk around the stores in in real life in the physical world. And by doing that, you know, the kind of the rising tide 
um, effect will actually benefit us all rather than everyone kind of, um, you know, competing and trying to, to grapple for for that limited bit of, of consumer attention. I think there's something really interesting, though, about how potentially we could see the rise of the cottage industry again. So yeah. it's interesting from an SME point of view, all of a sudden it feels like there's this renewed sense of permission to be able to do more. People have had to pivot in the last year more than they probably have in the last decade. And it feels like people also being able to reframe how they work, what new needs we have. There's going to be new industries which pop Mm. up from that. So, yeah, we have massive corporations like Amazon, like you said, but also it feels like there's a casual, valuable space for SMEs to step into, which potentially there wasn't before. So there's something really, really exciting about that. Like, will this age usher in a new, what it means to be an SME, how we support SMEs, how large organizations collaborate with SMEs? Really interesting. Okay, so the third trend is called Sweet Teams Are Made Of These, which is such a good name for a trend. So it's no surprise, guys, this trend is all looking at our changing relationship with technology, how we work and the impact it's having. So everybody has spent more time on screens to be able to communicate, to be able to work, to be able to collaborate. But it's really interesting because it's allowed us all to be able to recognize how work and our space around work can change. So a nice example of this is when we had the beast in the east a couple of years ago and we had the snow days, we didn't have any of the infrastructure set up to be able to work from home. Now we have so much of the infrastructure set up, it's allowing us to all be able to operate in new ways. Now, the other side of that is, I heard a great quote the other day that It's not us working from home, it's us living in the office. So there is a relationship we need to refigure out around this new way of working. How then do we put parameters around that? How do we reconfigure our lives around new ways of working? But also, how will this accelerate as we go forward? The world reopened, but new changes, new ways are going to have lasting implications. And the workforce and the workplace is going to be one of those spaces. So as we move forward into a new epoch of what that's going to look like, We've got to recognize that is there a blended model? Is it going to be that people are allowed to, or capable, not even allowed, capable of being able to work in new ways that they haven't been able to before? Equally, I think from a creative point of view as well, how will this change what collaboration looks like? How will the physicality of us being together via the distance of us working through screens affect the output of work? So it's a really interesting space we're going to move into around this and how we wrestle with that, grapple with that is just fascinating What's also interesting as well is, Mark made this point, never before have we spent so long looking at ourselves, which I just love. So the icon of ourselves as we talk is something we don't have previous. So all of a sudden we spend, what, nine, ten hours a day talking to people, but also looking at a reflection of ourselves. So it's interesting. What's the impact that's going to have on ourselves? Will it increase massively the volume of hairdressers, for example? Potentially, probably not. But it's interesting, you know, all of a sudden we are both confronted with our colleagues, our family, but also ourselves on a continual basis. So it's, a, it's, it's an interesting point. Yeah, for sure. I think, quick sidebar, the thing that broke my heart that Mark mentioned last week was exactly to that point of a snow day. Like we've now proven the fact that a snow day is no longer a thing. Like if it snows and we all stay home or if your kids are home from school, there's no reason that they can't work now, which I think may be one of the most tragic outcomes of this year so far. <laughs> I know, it's kind of cute though. Like I love the way, like I love the way celebrities have both failed in some ways around organising themselves around teams, 
but also how some have just seamlessly integrated into their lives. I think Joe Wick has done it so well. I think Joe Wick as a brand is really, really interesting. He really understands his audience. He understands social media particularly so well, but he also has this knack of just being able to slot into people's lives. So doing a 15-minute workout, doing PE, like growing up I hated PE, but doing PE at home with your family would actually be great crack. But earlier we spoke about how innovation comes in different manners. And I think Joe Wicks has really done that really well. Just a really simple, easy pivot. But literally, he's become a part of the UK's daily life. Just really nice. Mm. And it just comes like that, you said, just a genuine understanding from how his audience are feeling and like the need to build into their schedule and just make 15 minutes of their day a bit easier you know, um, just kind of really putting themselves in their shoes, which I think is is always the beginning of a great idea. Yeah, what's interesting as well is that the television, especially in a lot of family homes, is the member of the family which is about entertainment. It's the place where you relax. But all of a sudden, when the television has different uses, where screens have more valuable uses, it kind of repositions what programming is as well. And also what how our interactions Mm -hmm. with that screen change. I'm also, it's so interesting to think about, yeah, just this is definitely a complete sidebar now, but um, our relationship with technology and how it was seen as, you know, the bad guy. We were all kind of trying to reduce our screen time, be that for for children or for ourselves. There was a real concern about the, the kind of the creep of technology into every aspect of our life. And then suddenly overnight, it became the savior. It became the reason we were able to connect with colleagues, stay connected with family, that we're able to educate children. Um, and, and you know, will that, will that make us feel more positive about technology going forward? Even things like, you know, being a person growing up in Ireland, the diaspora and the level of the amount of friends and family that you inevitably have living in, in other countries is just a kind of part of, of Irish life, really. And I know for me anyway, personally, and, and lots of people that I spoke to, despite the fact of being more physically disconnected from, from everyone um, at home, I was certainly more connected with friends and family living abroad than I had been in years. Like same thing, cracking jokes, like sure, it only took, you know, a, a global pandemic to actually get us to finally do that Zoom call, do that Skype. Like these are all technologies that have existed for years. You know, Zoom's been around, Skype's been around, but we just had never really gotten the benefit from them. We'd never done the table quizzes. We'd never had the kind of group sessions and and someone playing music or whatever it was. We'd never used the technology to the fullest of its potential. And I think that's been a nice discovery for some people. Now, we, you know, we'll absolutely um, tire of them and we want to have real life interactions as much as we can, as soon as we can. But, you know, there has been, I guess, a rediscovery of some of the magic that technology can bring that maybe was overlooked when we were just bad mouthing it all the time. Yeah, it's, and the flip side of that is that if so much of our lives are through screens, then in Japan and in Korea, they have a thing called the touch economy, which is a, a little bit frightening. But it's where people have such high levels of isolation, they pay to be able to, to spend time with somebody where they get hugged. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds quite bizarre, I know, but it's a whole economy, yeah? And I wonder, as we move forward will there be this hole where that touch economy becomes much more mainstream? Mm. Which is just really interesting. When we think about the landscape of the economies we live in, new ones emerging based on our current mode of interaction, how we work, how we operate, the prevalence of a screen. What new avenues from a marketing, from a business landscape will start to emerge? 
Yeah, I'm not absolutely. saying touch economy is going to be a big thing, guys, but it's, it's interesting. I'm not okay with the phrase touch economy, I don't think. Um, but no, bringing it back, I know we were chatting about, obviously, um, the changing landscape of our of our work life and, and how that looks. But I think your your point around just our daily interactions and how that's changing kind of loops us back. I mean, I'm, it's a stretch. I'm looking for a way to make it seem like this was a linear conversation. But um, going back to to that, I think one of the things that's interesting about how different our lives are and, and the 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 change we've experienced in in kind of our interaction with the world around us is the loss of some of those people on the periphery of your life, right? We spoke about this last week. Um, not necessarily your closest friends, your your housemates, your family, the people that you like it or not, aren't aren't going to escape from as easily um, or that are still going to be part of your life. But those people, you know, friends of friends, colleagues that you might necessarily have their mobile number, the person that you get your coffee off, the people that you, you know, do your commute at the same time as every morning and you exchange that smile, which even if you are on public transport now, your mask hides anyway. Um, and, and what impact the loss of all of these little intangible interactions actually have on us? Because it's well recorded you know, the impact that the close relationships have on your your health, even your life expectancy. But what there's been more and more research into now is, well, what about if you still have those close and meaningful relationships? And hopefully everyone's lucky enough to have a couple of them that they've maintained over the course of the year. What about all of those other little bits and what do they, what richness do they bring to our life and what what happens when we lose them? Um, and I think, you know, particularly for for our job and for anyone that works in marketing or works in a brand um, you know, a hugely important part of what we do, uh, you know, when we're looking at a brief for the first time is kind of going, OK, we need to understand the target audience. How can we kind of get under the skin? How can we understand how they view the world? And a lot of the time that isn't reading their description on a page. You know, the first thing we'll try and do is where can we go and hang out or, or just spend time around these people or where they're spending time and absorb, you know, some of that um, that atmosphere and just experience them organically and, you know, in, in an observational way. And I think a big challenge for us and anyone looking to connect with audiences, how do we do that when we have had, you know, our, our ability to just meet people that aren't necessarily like us, to have that exchange of ideas, those random interactions, how do we recreate that in a virtual world? Um, or, you know, how can we facilitate it? And, it, it, you know, is it just going on reading um, blogs and going on to Reddit and trying to do social listening, you know, it's not necessarily replicable. Um, so I think that's something that's a big challenge to really try and push ourselves to not just stay in our own bubbles. Like we talk a lot about echo chamber and your social bubble really is the new echo chamber. You know, you're locked into your your group of like-minded individual people that you're already close enough to, to to maintain those relationships. So I think that's a big one is a big watch out. How do we break out of that? How do we still... Um, try and get fresh perspective and new ideas from from people outside of that small circle. Yeah, it's super interesting. There's actually a really good article in The Atlantic on fringe people and their value. But in the interest of time, I won't go too deep into that Atlantic article. So the next trend is... Is liquid infrastructure. So this really is, I guess, a direct reaction to collective displacement and all of this upheaval and change that we've seen. Essentially, how our organizations reacting to that. So, you know, how we experience and receive and get hold of products and services has changed unimaginably um, in 2020. And it's put huge 
pressure, I guess, on on businesses to relook at and rethink their entire supply chains and really try and reimagine every aspect of how they deliver their, their product or service and how can they make that as seamless as possible. Obviously, as we mentioned, some businesses will be more set up for this prior to the pandemic than others. So it's been a huge change for some, whereas just tweaks um, and, and kind of optimization for others that were kind of already moving in this direction. But one of the really interesting things is how organizations now are looking to rethink the physical assets that they have within their business and how can we actually make these work a little bit harder for us. So some of that is, you know, your physical space. Um, you know, we chatted about how, you know, if you've now shown that all, if not a large majority of your face-to-face interactions in your business have been proven to be able to happen virtually, what does that mean for a physical space? Does that become more of a a kind of a brand building location? Is it more about experience rather than actually transactional and delivering and fulfilling orders? Um, you know, so much scope essentially to rethink that. And, and a lot of businesses really looking for guidance on how do we, how do we think about this in an efficient way and, and how do we, yeah, make sure it's paying back to the brand. So Darius, I don't know what your kind of thoughts on this one, what stood out to you? So obviously this one looks at the rise of the direct-to-consumer model. One of the examples of this was the Heinz. It's like a hamper pack of everything you need from Heinz, which is really interesting. What stood out for me, though, is how the retail landscape is going to be altered radically, which we all know. But there's certain sections of the retail landscape which I think will, will be coming back to a different world and how they operate, I'm really looking forward to see. Most notably, the luxury retail sector. I think is going to be very different. I think that that space, how we interact within that space and how brands are going to be able to adapt there is going to be amazing. So Chanel, for example, really interesting. But Burberry, a really, really amazing brand. Um, Their flagship store is on Regent Street in London, but it's an innovation centre. It's the heart of the brand. And it's also where, where, where people go almost from a pilgrimage point of view but what's interesting is how will these titans of retail change when so much more is direct to consumer? So, and also how how will we recognise that? How will we rebel against it, or how will we embrace it? Just look at Debenhams, for example, large furore against how they were treated and large support from the public. But yet, on the other side, we can see the public want more direct to consumer models. So it's an interesting balancing act. Yeah, absolutely, and I think what's really important from an Irish perspective is nobody wants to see a return to 2008, right? Nobody wants to see high streets with boarded up shop fronts. And that's still very fresh in our kind of collective memory. So I think, you know, even before COVID, there was lots of cultural activists, community leaders already calling for the need to rethink how we use and allocate space in our, you know, in our, in the centres of our towns and cities and make sure that they are giving back to the community, that people feel ownership of them, that people feel like, you know, like it, they, they feel connected to that, that neighborhood. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, you've got brands looking on the one hand to think, how do we reimagine our physical assets and our physical space? And on the other hand, you've got people actively looking to be invited in more and looking to feel more ownership of that space. So again, real opportunities for brands to think, how can we, how can we use our, our physical assets to align with our, our target audience and, and kind of demonstrate that we have similar values and ethos. And we also want to support the local community and see, see this area thrive, you know. Great. So let's go on to the final trend. Okay. It's called the empathy challenge. 
So personally, this one stood out to me a lot. But 2020, the awareness and concern about inequality was massive. I'm not going to go through all of the, the upheaval we had last year, but we all know those loads politically, environmentally, the pandemic. Okay. So this poses a challenge for organizations as they try and respond. When the environment around us is so radically changed, the question of relevancy becomes even more heightened. How brands operate, act, and join that narrative is really, really interesting. So what's going to be the new approach, blending either pragmatism with empathy or re-looking at our relationship entirely with our audience and the wider issues that they face? It's interesting as well from an advertising point of view, recognizing brands which have stepped into conversations and recognize their own empathy and the right place they can go and join that conversation, we know pays dividends. We see it in Cannes every year, but we also see it because it drives that relationship with brands to make them iconic. Patagonia, a really lovely example. Yeah, they did a campaign recently where, where they joined a political conversation. And we, we know these, Wall Street with the fearless girl, again, joining a conversation. Yes, it had massive amounts of media. Yes, it landed a big message, but it also recognized the right level of empathy for brands to be able to engage with. I just think that even from a, a personal level, empathy is really tabled now in a way where we all have to recognize its collective value, both between each other, both as colleagues, but also empathy is a core driver for a business. It's what allows you to have lasting, strong relationships with an audience and for that audience to to have that loyalty to either stay with you, to pick you off the shelf every time. And it's, it's what allows them to be lifetime customers, which is just really interesting. And as we change and adapt with it, how will empathy change? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to think just how how maybe we hadn't thought about empathy as much as we ever have this year. And even small things like, you know, if you are working from home, if you are seeing your colleagues through your screen every day, having that um, that humanity when they are interrupted by kids at home or where things do go wrong or they get a knock on their door. Like, I think it was so easy for us to compartmentalize our relationships with so many people and not necessarily think of them as full humans and, and think about their lives outside of uh, outside of the office and the fact that they have so many other things going on. What do you mean? Oh my God, the guy, the... The cat filter guy. Oh, it's my like favorite that. thing. Oh, it's iconic. I'm live. I'm not a cat. It's like, thank oh, you for specifying It's just that. so good. But again, yeah, it's like... But I doesn't that just like, break down? You know, you see everyone as a person and that everyone has their technical foibles, ourselves included this morning. Um, everyone, you know, not no one's immune to some of those things that just happen in life. And I think, you know, I hope that have being, by being forced to see people in the whole a little bit more to have that holistic view of, of so many people, even people that you pass in the supermarket, like you're wearing a mask to protect them as much as you are yourself. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting to think, is this going to make us more empathetic going forward because we've been forced to think about other people or, you know, is it going to lead to compassion fatigue? And are we just overrun with trying to think of everyone else and it's hard enough to put one foot in front of the other? Like, I do think it's it's more the former. I do think we've been you know, we have started to see people as people again, hopefully, um, and that that is something that will will stay with us. I think on your point on on brands as well, like, you know, I think we've almost been forced, not forced, I think we've almost kind of evolved to see brands in a much more human way as well. We expect brands to react and respond in the same way 
that a human does. Like, I think we're not as detached from them anymore, which is good. Like we've had years of trying to build more meaningful connections with our audiences. But I think the flip side of that is you actually have to react like a friend then. Like if we really want to connect with our audience on a deeper level and your friend is going through something you know, experiencing something and, and you just sat there silently and didn't react, that would be weird. And and that's kind of how we view brands now. It's strange if a brand that you really love, that you feel connected with, doesn't share your views or doesn't react in a certain way. And, you know, we've seen so many brands step up to the plate and, and pivot overnight, whether it's alcohol brands making hand sanitizers or, um, you know, supporting the cause in different ways. And that is really what we expect because we start to see them as more human, I think. And and uh, and I think that also is, is a lasting impact. Yeah, it's interesting as well when you think that when consumption used to be something which demonstrated obviously class, taste, etc. But now with brands potentially becoming more polarizing, brands also become personal icons. They become fingerprints uh, of, of belief, mm. which... Is just something that as we go forward, will us as marketeers be be happy to polarize, to mm. potentially know that our actions are are going to move people away from us just as much as they're going to move people into us. And then equally, every brand is in a relationship with their audience, but then our audience use our brands as signifiers then. And will we be happy with handing over our brands to our audience to use them as signifiers? It's just really, really interesting. And like... I think as we go forward, how brave will we be within that space? How brave will we be to hand over our brands to our audience because they're valuable to them and they should, they do want to use them. Mm, absolutely. And I think that brings us nicely to our kind of final point. And I know I chatted about this last week as well, but I really do believe that this has sort of opened a can of worms in terms of our expectations of what we think brands need to do. And the thing that I'm struck by over the last 12 months is just the sheer scale of change that we've experienced. And, you know, for so long, we've been told that the way the brands operate or employers operate or governments or societies that we live in are just too complicated and too messy, too sticky a problem to to fix or to change overnight. And our own lived experience has now proven that to be untrue, right? Like I gave some examples of, you know, the pedestrianisation of streets and the introduction of cycle lanes, the virtual deployment of healthcare, all of these things that would have been unimaginable 12 months ago really did happen in such a short space of time that we now can't unsee that change. We can't unsee brands having the means and the will to react when you know, society is calling out for it. They they are able to do it and they are in, in most cases rewarded for that as well. So, you know, to put a positive spin on it, I think there is a real feeling that nothing is impossible um, and that there's an expectation for brands to to step up to the plate and to realise that. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how they navigate that going forward. And I think your point on bravery is is really well made. You know, I think it's um, it's going to require bravery to tackle some of the biggest issues that we see coming down the line um, and though those brands that, that answer the call, I think, will be the ones that win in the long term. Yeah, amazing. Hot take. If anybody's investing in public toilets, now is the time. <laughs> Let's go back to the lowbrow. <laughs> Finish as we, as, we, as we mean to go on. That's not a phrase. Um, listen, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. That was our Fjord Trends 2021 analysis. Feels like an overshot. I'm going to say hot take. And um, we really enjoyed chatting to you today. I hope you took something away from it and see you next time. Keep safe.